Welcome to Off the Record. I'm your host, Marika, and I'm a dietitian, nutritionist, and recovering perfectionist. Join me each week as I bring you raw and real conversations with inspiring men and women discussing matters in health and nutrition that are often swept under the rug. Sit back, relax, pour yourself a cup of coffee or a wine, and enjoy learning from conversations that help us to understand the messiness of what it means to be a healthy and balanced human. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Off the Record. Today's episode is all about my anxiety and my journey with anxiety. Um, I'm a little bit nervous about this podcast, but it is, well, it was World Mental Health Day on the 10th of October, so that was Sunday. So this episode is in light of that and helping raise awareness of mental health conditions Um, And I guess the mental health condition that I have struggled the most with over the years is anxiety. So the way that I'm going to structure today's episode is I'm going to do it in a Q&A style. So kindly, you guys have submitted quite a few questions for me to answer about my anxiety. So I'm just going to go through those one by one. And yeah, hopefully it gives some insight into not only my life, but hopefully can give you guys some awareness of anxiety and what it's like to live with anxiety and to run a business with anxiety. So firstly, I want to acknowledge that I am obviously not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So this episode is really about my experience with anxiety um, and should not be taken as, you know, medical treatment, therapy or anything like that. You, if you are struggling with your mental health, um, I definitely recommend reaching out to your doctor or to a psychologist Um, to get the support that you truly deserve and also need. Alrighty. So the first question that came through is when did my anxiety start? Now, I wish I could give you a specific answer to this, but um, I'm actually not sure when it began. Um, I, on reflection now, I do think that I've had anxiety for a very, very long time. And a lot of the things that I now reflect on as um, obviously an adult looking back on my childhood years, I definitely believe that I did have anxiety as a child as well, um, but just didn't really recognize it as anxiety. It just sort of was what it was. And I think it's something that over time has sort of fluctuated up and down. Obviously, I think that's the nature of anxiety is that, you know, if you have got chronic anxiety where it's, you know, appearing over, you know, your lifespan that you'll go through months and years where it's not as bad and then months and years where it is worse, um, depending on many circumstances in life. So, you know, through different um, challenges that I've faced in my life um, over the years, it has gotten worse. And then there's been periods of my life when it hasn't been as bad, but Yeah, I definitely think that some of my earliest childhood memories are of like that of anxiety um, and worry and trying to control situations even as a child. So I'm pretty confident that unfortunately, I think that's where it began. Um, But yeah, I just obviously didn't realize at the time. I also think having had it potentially since I was a child made it really hard for me to identify that it was anxiety. Um, And this sort of leads into the next question as well. But having had experienced it for most of my life, I kind of thought that that was just like my human experience, that that was the way that everybody was. I didn't really talk about the things that, you know, my brain was thinking of or anything like that. So um, for me, it was almost normal to be anxious. So I didn't know that there was any other way of existing until I started getting help for it. So 
um, bit depressing to think that, but uh, that's the reality of it for me. The next question is, how did I know it was time to seek help? Um, I think this is a really hard question. Um, the time for me where I realized that I needed help was when it was not manageable on my own and where I felt like it was slipping away from me and my, I guess my whole mental health was like falling apart. So, um, yeah, when, when I felt like I couldn't control it anymore. And I guess that's an element of anxiety is that you feel like that you can, and you should control everything. So when I felt like that, I couldn't, that was when I was like, okay, I need, I need to find somebody else to help me with this. The other thing that I definitely noticed that I did, um, in my teenage years is like, this is going to show my age, but like all of the Dolly magazines and girlfriend magazines and Cosmo and all of that. I remember every now and then there'd be like questionnaires in them about, you know, anxiety and depression and that sort of stuff. And I would do them and almost like wish that it did say that I had anxiety. So that meant that, yeah, maybe I should be reaching out for help. Um, and obviously now on reflection, that is a big you know, flag that I do need to get help is if I'm sitting there reading this, wishing, wishing that I could reach out for help. So one thing I want to say to you, if you're sitting at home and wondering when is the right time for me to reach out for help, if you are asking that question, now is the right time. Um, and I wish that I had said that to my 15 year old self as well. I do think though, on the flip side, one of the hardest things about reaching out for help is I guess the vulnerability required to do that if you've, um, you know, grown up in an environment where, you know, talking about your feelings and those sorts of things is not, um, yeah, is not normal or not, I guess, encouraged or just not something that you've done, um, you know, uh, growing up or anything. It can be incredibly um, frightening. And, you know, depending on who you're going to to start that conversation, whether it be your parents, your family, your friends, relatives, um, or be it a professional, um, that's a really difficult conversation to have. And the thing I guess I've learned with that is that it doesn't matter what the response is that you get to that conversation. You definitely deserve help. And if you don't get the response that you hoped for, so say for example, um, and this happened to me is I remember on multiple occasions, I went to doctors to reach out for help and was just, um, really neglected in terms of the response that I got. So one GP actually said to me, this generation needs to toughen up. They don't know what it's like to experience hardship or or something along those lines. It was definitely like there was definitely the word toughen up in there and this generation doesn't understand. And I was like, okay, um, you don't understand what's going on in my head right now, but all right. So I walked out of that GP appointment, obviously incredibly deflated because for me, that was such a challenging conversation to even have is to tell somebody how I was feeling. And, you know, obviously I'm sitting here on a podcast telling God knows how many people about how I'm feeling. Um, so I'm obviously have grown a lot in that way, but at that time, I think I was like 20. Um, that was a really challenging thing for me to do and to then front up to the GP and have that response sort of put in my face. It was incredibly, incredibly disheartening. But I think the thing that I learned from that was that And I had a really good friend, oh, she's still my friend at the time who said to me that, you know, that's not the answer that you deserve and that's not the truth. Um, And 
to continue to look for support in ways that I can and, you know, reach out for help from other people or go to a different doctor. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you feel like it's time to seek help and you don't get the response that you want, that doesn't mean that you don't deserve help and that you won't get it. So just try other methods, go to different people, find another doctor, speak to another family member, go to a friend until you get the response that you feel like that you need. Okay. Question number three, how did I know it was anxiety and not just worry or stress? Um, Again, this led into my very late diagnosis of anxiety. Um, I did think it was just normal worry and stress, as I mentioned earlier, having had experienced it for most of my life. I didn't think that it was anxiety. I just thought that this was, like I said earlier, the human experience and that everybody felt this way. Um, And part of me still does almost believe that, that, you know, maybe, maybe everybody does feel this way. Um, but what I have since known to be true is that it doesn't have to feel like this. And if everybody does feel this way, that that's sad and that we should be able to sort of work to reduce the anxiety and to feel a bit more present and to feel a bit more relaxed. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how I knew it wasn't, it was anxiety, sorry, and that it wasn't just worry or stress, but I think that when it became too much or when it became overwhelming, um, where it was really affecting my day-to-day experience, that's when I really thought that this is something more than just worry and stress. And I think the other thing is um, speaking to people about it and hearing other people's experiences of, you know, like one of the things I always say with one of my girlfriends is that when my partner goes surfing, like I'd be sitting there on the beach and I'd be like, okay, so if a shark comes and bites his leg, what am I going to, like, I'm going to have to be the one that goes out there and drags him in. And then what am I going to use as a tourniquet for his leg? And how am I going to get help when I'm trying to tourniquet his leg? And am I going to use his leg rope? But what happens if the shark got the leg rope? (laughs) And that's just like literally my experience of so many different things. It's like going to that worst case scenario and coming up with like a really detailed explanation of how I'm going to deal in this situation. So I think when I started speaking to people about like, this is what I do. And hearing that, like, they're like, you know, that's not normal, Marika. Like you should be able to lie on the beach and relax and watch your partner surf and not think about how you're going to tourniquet his leg. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, that sounds nice. Um, So that was for me, I think one of the other moments where I realized that it probably is something a bit more clinical than just worry or stress where I couldn't enjoy, I guess, relaxing experiences because I was sabotaging them with these catastrophic thoughts. So the next question is, do I experience physical symptoms of my anxiety? And the short answer is absolutely, yes, I do. The long answer is they have changed over time. Um, One of the part of this question was actually, do I experience um, gastrointestinal symptoms? So things like nausea, vomiting, um, diarrhea or constipation. At this point in time, I don't experience any gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, my primary symptom of or physical symptom of anxiety is tightness in the chest. Um, and I've sort of got two ways of describing this, a fun second way that's appeared over the last few years, which is this like burning sensation in my chest um, that really has only appeared recently. Um, but the more common way that I experience anxiety physically is uh, through this feeling and the way that I describe it is like a belt wrapped around my chest. And like, 
each day that it gets worse, it's like another notch is sort of taken in in the belt. So it's this like gripping, wrapping feeling around my chest. I definitely have, um, in saying that, had uh, gut-related symptoms of anxiety though. Uh, And that was more related to more anxiety attacks that I was having when I was in my early 20s. Yeah, so when I would have anxiety attacks, I would definitely get the nausea. I would be racing to the bathroom. um, And that was, I guess, more... um, how do I explain this? It was in relation to really specific things that were happening in my life at that point in time. So um, it was a relationship that I was in at that point in time that was um, causing me a lot of anxiety um, for numerous reasons. And I would, as a result, get these sort of anxiety attacks come on um, in certain situations. And that would then um, yeah, manifest quite physically at that point in time. Um, and in particularly in my gastrointestinal system, that would manifest. Um, but yeah, more recently, it's definitely been the physical symptoms in my chest. And I remember the first time that I ever got that physical symptom in my chest, I thought I was dying. Um, as you do when you've got anxiety, um, it was yeah the first time I'd ever experienced this pain in my chest. Although now looking back, I definitely had it as a child as well. Um, but I, I remember calling up my brother. So I've got a couple of my brothers are doctors. And so I called up one of them and I was like, okay, so these are the symptoms that I'm feeling. I think I need to go to the emergency department. I think I'm having a heart attack. Mind you, this was when I was like a fit, healthy, I don't know, 25 year old. And I was like, this is not normal. Like I've, I've got something going on. Anyway, I spoke to him for like 20 minutes on the phone. And by the time that 20 minutes was up, I was like, ah, my chest feels better. He was like, yeah, it's anxiety. I was like, okay, cool. This is fun. (laughs) Um, So no, that was a, that was a fun first time experience. I think that is the experience for a lot of people who do get the chest pain is that they, it turns them into health anxiety where it's like, oh my God, I'm actually going to die. I need to go to the emergency department, but rest assured it was just anxiety. The next question is, what is my anxiety mainly about? Is it work? Is it relationships, friends? Um, And what are my main triggers? I wish I could answer this question for you because that would solve me a lot of problems. Um, But I would say it definitely is like generalized anxiety disorder where it is unknown what the things are that are going to trigger me. Yes, there are definitely certain situations that um, do provoke more anxiety for me. So work in particular. And I think that, and this comes into one of the questions later is around my perfectionistic tendencies are really work driven. Um, so that definitely does induce quite a lot of anxiety for me. Um, romantic relationships, not so much. My partner's incredibly chilled out. Um, so it does make that really, I guess, easy for me. Um, and friends, again, I don't really get uh, a lot of anxiety around friendships. Social anxiety is definitely something that I've sort of toyed with from time to time. Um, but I think that's more of a greater like symptom of just generalized anxiety. It's not like that the social situations themselves are that terrifying for me. It's just that I'm anxious in general. And the thought of being around people is just ugh, um, so bad, but it's so true. One thing that I have noticed in terms of my main triggers though, is that uncertainty is a huge trigger of mine. So when I feel like I can't control situations or when I'm not feeling in control, um, then I do really get like a flare up of my anxiety. Um, so obviously COVID's really fun for that because we've been able to control our lives for the last 18 months so well. But no, in saying that one of the things that I guess then is a coping mechanism for me with that is 
to try and have some level of control and that be like in my routines and the things that I do on a daily basis so that even in the uncertainty, I have certainty around the things that I do each day. So that for me is, um, I guess, having that element of control there. Sound like a control freak, but I probably am. The other thing that I've probably noticed around triggers is that it does change with time. Like whether it's like health anxiety or anxiety of people dying or all of the different things, it just changes based on situations where I am, I guess, in terms of my phase of life, what I've been focused, like, you know, if I'm in a really work heavy period of my life, then it's obviously going to be work related. Or if I'm in a really like heavy period of health problems, then it's going to be more health related. So I think that it's really hard for me to identify certain triggers and labeling my anxiety as I guess trigger related is not helpful for me because then I think that I would get disappointed when it was triggered by other things. Whereas I just know that my anxiety is going to come and go. Um, and that I'm not going to know necessarily, you know, the specifics around why it's flared up or what's triggered it. Um, And that I think gives me, again, some sense of control is that I'm not trying to understand exactly what it is that's triggered my anxiety. Okay, next two questions are around, have I seen a GP and have I seen a psychologist and what was my experience with them? So yes, I've already answered the GP um, before, but no, I do have a really good GP now. So she has been fantastic in supporting me Um, and I have seen a psychologist and continue to. Um, psychology has been something that I've been involved in since, oh, for at least 10 years now, I've been on and off through, um, different psychologists. Um, my experience with them, uh, is I guess like my experience with, you know, any health professional is that it's going to be dependent on your relationship with that individual. So what my suggestion is, is if you are reaching out to either a GP or a psychologist is to. I guess go in with the understanding that the first person that you see may not be the person for you. And that is okay. It might take you five or six different psychologists to eventually find the one that you're like, oh my God, yes, this person can really help change my life. Um, And I'm going to try and quickly tally up in my head how many I've been to over the years. I reckon five or six, maybe seven psychologists over the years. Um, Some I went through like, you know, multiple sessions with, and actually, you know, did see some improvements and really enjoyed working with them. And then I moved or, you know, it was a different, I guess, issue that I was presenting with or a different circumstance. Um, so I have found psychology to be incredibly useful, but you do need to find somebody that you feel really comfortable with because you are going to share incredibly intimate details of your life with this individual. So you need to feel that you can trust them and that you feel safe with them. Uh, And I guess the safety doesn't come often until you've had multiple sessions with them. So I get that that's a financial burden. um, And I know that, you know, Medicare is helping a little bit with that. Um, But unfortunately, that's that's our healthcare system. In saying that, um, one of the things that uh, a lot of people have sort of said to me is that like, therapy doesn't work for me or, um, you know, I, it's just not going to be my solution. And I think for me personally, I don't relate to that because to me, therapy or psychology is not about whether it works for you or it doesn't work for you. It's about finding a way for it to work for you. 
So there's multiple different, you know, methods that you can sort of go through in terms of psychology. So be it like cognitive behavioral therapy or um, EMDR or, you know, just different, different types of therapy that you can do with your psychologist. So I think that it's worth persevering and particularly if you're suffering, obviously it's worth finding somebody and finding a method that really aligns with you and provides you with the support. And like some of my therapists over the years have just been there, I guess, as almost like an unbiased third person that I can talk to. It's just somebody who's not involved in my life and I can just go there and just offload and vent. And it hasn't been so much about doing the work as it has been just engaging in a conversation and talking about how I'm feeling, which has also served its purpose. So I would definitely, I'm a strong, strong advocate if you don't know already for psychology, um, even if you don't suffer from mental illness, I think psychology really should be seen as like a personal trainer for your brain. It's like helping you to be stronger mentally, to be more resilient, to understand yourself. And I think that, you know, everybody should do psychology at some point in their life. I I truly believe that. The next question is, have I used medication or have I found a way to manage my anxiety without medication? Uh, And the answer is yes to both of those. Um, I have used medication and I do find ways to manage my anxiety without medication, but I do know that at certain periods of my life, medication is an incredibly important part of my, I guess, toolkit of dealing with my mental health um, struggles. So I am very pro-medication if you need it because it has saved me on multiple occasions. So um, I feel very grateful for the fact that we have such great medication for anxiety and depression um, and that it again, for me has provided me with, I guess, a safety blanket that has made me feel a lot better. For me, hopefully it's not something that I will be on for my entire life, but if it is, then so be it. I'm not um, I'm not pro or anti-medication. I just think that it serves a purpose in an individual's life and a certain point of time. And if it's the option for you that feels right for you in that point in time, then it shouldn't be disregarded because of the stigma around it. And I definitely felt that when I first went on medication for my anxiety, um, it almost felt like a bit of a failure in that, like, well, I couldn't do this myself and I couldn't manage it myself. And I think that that's so untrue and it's so unfair that, you know, that we're expected to manage a um, an illness on our own without medication. That's like saying, well, you broke your arm. How come you didn't heal it yourself without a cast? Like, because the cast is there to support the healing and the same way that medication can be there to support the healing of your brain. Again, in certain situations, I, on the flip side, am not an advocate of medication being a band-aid option for mental health. I think mental health requires an incredibly like multifaceted approach to it because there's so many things that obviously play into our mental health. So medication is one part of the journey. Psychology is one part of the journey. Um, Healthy eating, healthy living, all of these things play into the treatment approach for your mental health condition. And again, it will depend on your individual circumstances, but I think that we shouldn't be approaching it with a one-prong approach that medication is either the answer or it's completely not the answer. There is a massive spectrum of hundreds of different answers in there 
And for me, you know, it's a, it's a lifelong journey of finding out what is the answer for you. And I don't think that that is even the right way to think about it is that it's not that like, I don't think about my anxiety as something that I need to fix or that I need to get rid of as much as I would love that. I think that that would be setting me up for failure if I said that I have to get rid of my anxiety forever. And, you know, every time it came back that that's, I guess, a failure on my part or that that means that I'm broken because for me, accepting that anxiety is part of me has been so much more, um, I guess, what's the word? Um, I guess relaxing to me. I don't think that's the right word. I don't know what the word is, but it's been so much more um, beneficial for me to be able to say, yes, anxiety is going to come and go as part of my life. There's going to be periods in my life when it is stronger and there's going to be periods in my life when I potentially are free of it, but I don't hold an expectation on myself that it will never come back again. And I just work on the strategies that I have to keep it at bay for as long as I can. And when it does start to rear its head, then I have to ramp up those strategies even more. The next question is about perfectionism, which I knew was going to come up. Um, And it's a two-part question. Is there a relationship between perfectionism and anxiety? And do my perfectionistic tendencies relate to my anxiety? Um, And obviously, how do I manage with that? Um, I'm going to get to the managing later on in this episode and sort of go through some of the strategies that I use personally. Um, but in terms of perfectionism and anxiety, um, I actually haven't looked into the research of this, but I am well and truly sure that there is going to be an overlap in terms of perfectionism and anxiety because perfectionism is striving for perfect and perfect does not exist. So of course you're going to feel anxious when you're always striving for something that is impossible to achieve. Um, you'll never feel like you're actually making it anywhere. And that can be really anxiety inducing. And perfectionism can also make you want to feel like you need to have control over every situation. And I guess it depends on where your perfectionism lies. So like I said earlier, mine really lies in my work. Um, And so if you're trying to have control over something that ultimately we don't have control over anything, like things happen that are out of our control all of the time. So trying to have this strict control is incredibly anxiety provoking because it's impossible again. So I think that there definitely is a relationship between anxiety and perfectionism. Um, the, The interesting thing for me is I don't think like, it's like the chicken or the egg, which one comes first. I don't think my perfectionism came first. Um, I would not say that I was a perfectionist growing up and that I, was a high achiever or anything. I, I very much was not. Um, and perfectionism was not something that I really related to until I think I got into uni. So I definitely think that the anxiety um, came first and the perfectionism sort of came after, um, but they definitely do entwine. The next question is health anxiety. Do I experience health anxiety based on my story around my chest pain? The answer is absolutely yes. Um, it is one of the areas of anxiety that I do experience more frequently. And I think that comes from having a medically um, trained family. So most of my family are in the medical profession, be it in allied health or be it um, doctors. So, you know, I'm very aware of a lot of medical um, conditions, medical terminology. It's a lot of, you know, conversations that I've had growing up is around medical things and the human body. So I think health anxiety sort of falls into that is that 
as soon as you know a lot about what can go wrong, then you can sort of predict that those things are going to happen to yourself and worry about that. So definitely something that I have experienced. The next question is related to nutrition and anxiety. Um, So it's around certain foods or alcohol contributing to my anxiety, or do I tend to overeat or undereat when I am anxious? Um, And for me, food really hasn't played a huge role in my anxiety. Um, I've had a really healthy relationship with food and my body for most of my life, which I'm incredibly fortunate for and very much thank my parents for the upbringing that they have given me with that. Um, So I don't really experience a lot of anxiety around food or my body. Um, Alcohol, absolutely. And I think that that's not limited to people who experience like generalized anxiety disorder. I think that alcohol is an incredibly um, anxiety inducing toxin. Like it is a toxin um, for a lot of people and particularly when you are consuming it in excess. Um, So it is something that I definitely manage. I don't drink a lot of alcohol these days um, for that reason is that, you know, if I have a big night and I'm hungover, my anxiety is like my heart rate is literally through the roof for 24 hours. And it's an experience that I don't really want to experience. So I don't really drink um, much at all these days. Um, In terms of overeating or undereating, I personally have never really experienced either of these. I know that this is something that a lot of people do struggle with. And through, you know, my work as a dietitian, I've worked with people who have experienced both ends of these spectrums. Um, but food is so important to me that it really doesn't change. Um, when I'm anxious, I'll still, you know, sometimes I'll feel like not eating because I'm a little bit like nauseous or chest pain, but I still will eat because I love food. Um, and I really prioritize feeling my body as well. So I yet yeah, don't experience um, overeating or undereating. Probably in the past, I have erred towards overeating more, um, but not when I'm in that acute like anxiety state. I guess it's more of a long-term like stress state when I would overeat a bit more. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't say that I am a huge sort of tendency towards either of those, but if you are experiencing them, they are so, so common. Um, and like I said in the episode with um, Megan Gray previously is that overeating is not um, like if you're finding that you're binging to cope with your anxiety, it's not the worst coping mechanism. It's obviously not an ideal coping mechanism. Um, and we want to work on improving your coping mechanisms, but don't beat yourself up for having that as your coping mechanism. Reach out for support to help you find healthier ones. Uh, Next question is, how can people, and I love this question when I saw it, I had tears well in my eyes. How can people support their partners with anxiety? What a beautiful question. So to whoever it was that asked that question, you are such a beautiful soul for even asking that question. Um, And I appreciate you so much. Um, I think the question that you've asked me is the question that you ask your partner. How can I support you with your anxiety and let that person make that decision? Because I can't answer that per- that question for somebody else. What I need for support from my partner with anxiety might look incredibly different to what your partner needs for support. So sit down and have an open and honest conversation with them and you know, if they've told you that they've had anxiety, that that in itself was probably an anxiety provoking situation for them. So, you know, verbalize to them that you're glad that they shared it with you and that, you know, that you're being open and vulnerable and honest. They're being open and vulnerable and honest, sorry, with you 
um, and that you know that it might have been a really hard conversation to have and that you're there to support them in whatever way that that looks like for them. Um, and then, yeah, ask for their feedback on what is the best way that you can support them and just being there. I think that's probably one of the most important things is being present when that person is anxious. Obviously, we can't be present all of the time, but, you know, when when you are there, making sure you're fully there. And this leads into the next question, um, which is how to explain it to your partner who has never experienced it. And I love this question because this was something that I actually did really struggle with is because my partner, like I mentioned earlier, is incredibly chilled out um, guy. And he, he really hasn't got a lot of experience in my understanding of um, what my mental world has been. And so it's really hard to verbalize that when somebody um, I guess is, is so chilled out and like, I'm so envious of his ability to relax and chill out and everything. And I don't know whether I have a great answer, but I think that for me, the answer is to just keep trying to put words to how you're feeling and to continue to verbalize, verbalize, sorry, what is your experience and not to be offended if they don't understand, because that's not through a lack of them wanting to understand. It's more so that if you haven't experienced anxiety, or even I would extend this to mental illness, if you haven't experienced mental illness, then it's really hard to relate to mental illness. So like, it's like saying, what does it feel like to break a bone? If you've never broken a bone, you don't know what it feels like. So the same thing would be said about like, you know, depression. If you've never experienced depression, how do you explain that to somebody that just does not understand that? And I think that it comes from, it, it needs to have a two-prong approach where it, you need to have obviously incredible compassion and empathy from the person who's receiving it to be able to understand that you're experiencing something that they never have experienced um, or may never have experienced, or if they have experienced they may have never felt safe enough to verbalize that. Um, and that comes with a whole host of other challenges. You know, if they have experienced something like this and they felt that they were never safe enough to be able to share that with anyone, then your sharing may actually trigger, um, I guess, defensiveness in them or shutting down in them because essentially without them probably being consciously aware, they might be envious that you're verbalizing when they haven't been able to do that. So I think that's something to be aware of is that just navigating this situation of how it's going to be received and um, what you need most and verbalizing that, letting that person know what you need and your experience. But I guess not hanging on to the fact that they're going to exactly understand what it is that you're going through because one thing that I've learned about mental illness over the years is that nobody's experience is the same. So nobody's going to understand exactly what it's like to be in your brain except for you. And that's okay. I don't think that, you know, everybody needs to know exactly what it's like to be in your brain. And it doesn't mean that they don't love you. Okay. Final question. What strategies have worked for me? Says me, the most anxious person on the planet. So none, no, joking. Um, <laughs> my strategies that I need to do on a daily basis that work for me. And when I say I do them on a daily basis, I don't do them on a daily basis <laughs> that I should do on a daily basis. 
Um, physical activity is so important for my anxiety. If I don't move my body in some way every day, then after a couple of days, I can definitely tell the difference. So be that going for a walk, be it doing a workout, be it going for a run. I need to be moving my body every single day in order to feel good um, and in order to not be in my head so much. Um, Boundaries, really important one. So for me, the boundaries have been really around work um, and making sure that I'm not taking on too much, that I'm saying no, that I'm putting boundaries around my work hours and, you know, all of the things that I need to, to, I guess, keep my work under control and not bleeding into every other area of my life. So yeah, boundaries, definitely. Um, medication where required has definitely been a good one for me. Therapy, definitely. Um, journaling. Oh my God. Life-changing. Absolutely life-changing. It took me so long to get into it. Um, like years of, you know, buying a journal and writing in it once a month, but now I do it pretty much every day. You know, I'll miss days here and there. Um, but it has really helped me to put words to what I'm feeling and to get it out of my head and onto paper. So cannot recommend journaling enough. Meditation. I have a funny relationship with, I really struggle with it, but I also really see the value in it. So, um, my brain is just like, I describe it like a ping pong ball. It's like not a ping pong ball, um, a pinball machine. Uh, It's like pinning back and forth. So meditation is something that I know I need, and I know that the more I do it, the better I'll get at it and the less likely I am to have like a pinball machine brain. But it also means sitting through that pinball machine experience (laughs) in order to get better at it. So um, I do do it almost every day now. um, And when I do it consistently, I definitely notice a difference. Um, So meditation, definitely something that I would um, recommend. Uh, What other strategies? talking to people, hundred percent talking to people, um, creating really good social networks, um, strong connections with people. It doesn't have to be a lot of people, but knowing that you have safety in people is what has for me been such an integral part of my experience and reducing my anxiety is that knowing that there's people there for me when I need them. And if you feel like, you know, you're at home right now and you're like, I don't have people there for me, that doesn't mean that you can't reach out and you can't begin to form relationships with people so that you do have those people there for you. And it does take being vulnerable and uncomfortable to be able to get to that point, which is hard. Um, I I totally recognize how hard it is, but it's so important. Um, What else? Online shopping? (laughs) Am I allowed to say that? Uh, No, that's not a good coping mechanism. Um, Eating healthy, definitely, but I feel like that's almost ingrained in me and part of me. If I was to, you know, eat takeaway all day, every day for a week, I'd probably feel much more anxious than what I do. Um, Also, I want to say in this is that some of these strategies, a lot of people think that like they fix your anxiety or like, you know, for example, what's the diet for anxiety? You know, what should I eat and avoid so that I don't get anxiety? It's not about that. Like eating healthy is not about removing your anxiety. It's about improving your experience of anxiety so that it's not as, I guess, all consuming or it's not as um, out of control or it's not as occurring as frequently. So I think that even when it comes to, you know, therapy or medication, the expectation should never be that, and maybe I'm wrong in saying this, but the expectation should never be that it's going to go altogether. It's that 
you feel like that you have a really good toolkit of things that you can pull out and use on a daily, weekly, monthly, whatever it is basis so that you feel like you don't suffer as much. Um, Just remembered then one other thing that I feel like has helped me a lot is hobbies. Um, I think that this is all play. I think it's such an important part of particularly adulthood that society is really missing is this idea of being able to find joy and play um, doing things like, you know, painting, coloring, running around in the backyard, doing fun things. Like what, what adult do fun things on a regular basis? I like my partner does fun things on a regular basis. Um, but finding a hobby is such a great idea when you've got anxiety and, you know, examples might be, it could be like physical activity based hobbies. So for me getting into jujitsu and Muay Thai earlier were really great ways for me to, I guess, um, escape my busy mind and to focus on other things. And, um, the other thing that I found with jujitsu and, uh, Muay Thai was that doing it as part of a community was also incredibly healing as well. Whereas I think, for example, my partner surfs. And I think that if I was to do surfing or like a really solo activity, that it probably wouldn't have the same impact. Um, so yes, like, you know, gardening and coloring and all of those sorts of things are fantastic and maybe would be more valuable for people who already have a really strong community. But if you don't have a strong community, I would recommend looking at a hobby that involves other people because I think that there's so much power in doing a fun activity that involves other humans and particularly other humans around your age. Like, you know, you don't want to be going to hang out with two-year-olds. Well, I mean, that's fun as well, but like not in the same way, you know, it's good to engage with adults of your approximate age um, to engage in play and fun and relaxation. So finding things like that, um, you know, maybe it's going to a painting class or like a pottery class. Obviously COVID has made this incredibly challenging, Um, But hopefully soon we'll be able to return to some level of normality. And I would strongly encourage you if you don't have a hobby or if you can't answer the question, what do I do purely for fun or what do I do for play? Then I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you, whether you've got anxiety or mental health, sorry, mental illness, I would strongly encourage you to look into um, finding an element of play in your life or an element of fun in your life, because what is the point if we don't have, you know, fun and play that we can look forward to? So they are my strategies for dealing with my anxiety personally. Um, I'm sure there are probably a few others that I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but like I said, I think for me, and the, I guess the message that I really want to drive home is one, you deserve support and you should um, definitely reach out for support because it does get better. Um, but two, know that it will like wax and wane and that it will peak and it will trough and that the goal is not to get rid of it, but to be able to identify it, to be able to sit with it, to be able to still experience joy and life and to be able to have moments where you really do feel relaxed and really feel like that you can switch off and enjoy life. Um, So yeah, I hope that answers your questions. If you are struggling, please know that there is support out there. The Lifeline Crisis Support Hotline is 13 11 14. If you do feel like you need to connect with somebody, that is a 24-hour hotline in Australia. So that's 13 11 14. 
Or alternatively, there's the Beyond Blue hotline, which is again a 24-hour service, seven days a week, which is 1-300-224636. So 1-300-224636. Please know that there is somebody out there who is willing to listen to you and that you so deserve to be able to feel like you can switch off and relax and feel moments of joy. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. It was obviously a very deeply personal one to me. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, love to see you sharing on social. So don't forget to tag me at Marika Day. Have a wonderful week and I will speak with you guys next week. Bye.